The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, joining me this morning is George Hodgman. He is author of Bettyville. He's a veteran magazine and book editor, and today he's sharing his unforgettable story of returning home to small-town Missouri to care for his aging mother, and the book has been described as a beautifully crafted story of secrets, silences, and enduring love that is simultaneously hilarious and heartwarming. Welcome to the show, George. Nice to have you on this morning. Thank you for having me. Well, I think that's a perfect, apt description of your book, or at least that's how I felt about it when I read it. Um, But first I would say, I mean, this is a memoir, great memoir, but you have been in the publishing business in Manhattan for a long, long time. So I guess my first question is, like, we went from the publishing business to writing a memoir. Um, why did you do that? Well, I lost my job. Um, <laughs> well, that's which a good reason. <laughs> um, ease the way to a transition. Um, yeah. I lost my job, and I, um, I had always wanted to write, and I'd really given up that, you know, uh, that notion. And I came home. And um, I really began to sort of jot some things down in a sort of therapeutic way. Um, I'd never kept a journal, but I just was sort of writing notes to myself in a way. And being back here, I think, um, made me aware that I really did, that I'd filed away a lot of little pieces of memories so you said being back here. Maybe we should just clarify that a little more because here you were in Manhattan, lost your job. Then that was what in 2012, 20. It was 2011. 2011. 2011. Headed back to Paris, Missouri, where your mother was living alone, your aging mother, and that's where you are now. Yeah, I've been here. Most of the time, I'd say 90% of the time uh-huh. since then, because there is, I mean, the original uh, thing that made me stay here was that she had lost her driver's license, and she'd been hiding it. And, um, you know, she had, no, she had no way, except when her housekeeper came to go to the grocery store or, um, you know, get out. How and, old was she? Um, Yes. How old was she when she, in, tw- in 2011, when she, she was lost 90. Her She was what? She was 90. 90. Yeah, and we had the agreement that, you know, she would only drive these few places, um, which are a few blocks away. And anyway, she broke her, you know, she broke our little contract and had a little bender bender and so that was it for the driving. And I would yeah. have to say the town of Paris, Missouri, which I hadn't heard of before I read your book, but is what has just barely over 1,000 people, population? About 1,200. 1,200. How shocking. I mean, to go from Manhattan to Paris, Missouri is a real leap. <laughs> or I, I mean, you grew up there, as I understand it, but still isn't. I mean, that has a, a, a transition that is, takes a lot of adjusting, I would imagine. I miss my sushi, yeah. that's for sure. <laughs> so would I. And my Indian food. Uh-huh. Um, but, you know, I think that in some ways, I think it would be hard to go from New York City to Dayton, Ohio, you know, for, to some sort of medium-sized city. But this is so radically different that it's... Um, it's interesting, 
And it's interesting to me. I mean, I've worked with reporters all my life who reported from, um, you know, about people's lives in Iraq or, you know, the ghetto or wherever. And the reporter in me likes being here because there's a lot of change that's occurred in these areas since I was a kid. And um, people's people's lives are so much different. And I I love this place deeply. I, I have so many memories here, and there's so many positive uh, things I recall about the people in these towns around here. And I, um, you know, it, 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 so many feelings and, and uh, you know, came into me when I returned that it, you know, I, I'm, I haven't been bored here. I mean, also, there's my mother. She's not boring. And um, <laughs> uh, it's pretty entertaining. All right, let's talk about that. Okay, so you've come to this very small town that you grew up in with good memories, but also you had some not-so-good memories. I want to talk about that as well. Um, but so, she, I mean, you are her only caretaker. I mean, as I understood it when you came back, and, I mean, this is a huge topic, caretaking for your elderly parents. And um, you are her, I don't want to say primary, you're the only one, right? You're responsible for her. We have a helper. You have a helper. I, okay. I don't think I could do it by myself, particularly okay. now, because she's also developed cancer, and also because I'm a man, and there are things a man can't do with his mother, and, yeah. you know, uh, we have a helper, but I'm, you know, I have, I'm the person who's here 24-7. So talk to, tell, what about when you you come back, your mother's 90 years old, she lost her license, she's she losing her, you know, she doesn't, she didn't have, uh, does she have dementia? I guess she does she have dementia, dementia, but not Alzheimer's, which is no. different. Yeah. Alzheimer's has a much more definite course. And yeah. Dementia, I mean, there are no two people with dementia who have exactly the same scenario. You know, it's every, every somebody said every person with dementia is completely different. They're like snowflakes. And so people manifest all kinds of different symptoms. And um, so that's our situation. And um, my, you know, all around the country and the world, people are taking care of people, mothers and, you know, spouses and and, um, uh, people with disabled children. I, I really admire those people but i i mean the thing about this book is that it's really about somebody and this is what gives it its comedy it's about somebody who just was kind of ill-suited to the task or at least considered himself ill-suited to the task i'd lived for 25 years in new york on takeout food and ambition and i've been a total workaholic and um you know I couldn't keep a cactus alive, and I was scared to get a dog because I thought I'd probably kill it. And um, and I love my parents. I deeply only child who's worried all his life about what would happen when my parents got older. And and so I I didn't um, I just I came back and I just didn't think I could do it. I didn't think it was possible for me. And so the book, in a, in a way, tracks my increasing competency at the task. And a person who just was afraid of all this, taking on this responsibility, and also really being inspired by this woman who's very old, but who is doing everything she can to hold on to her mind. So, but here's your mother, and obviously, as you knew her, I mean, you're the only child, only son, and she yeah. was this vibrant, vital woman when you were growing up, and afterwards with her husband, what they were married 50 years, and she was a mem- you know, vibrant member of the community. But what was it like? You come back, and here she is, 90 years old. She's lost her license. She's not. She's 
not independent. Um, she's, I mean, you describe her as courageous and headstrong and, and vulnerable. I want to talk about that vulnerability because how does that make you feel? How did you, I mean, to come back to seeing your mother in in that kind of is a condition, I would say. And well, I, you know, I came back a lot. You know, since my father died in 1997, yeah. I had been, it wasn't like it was this radical change because I had been coming back and seeing the changes. And, you know, we all have to deal with that. The loss of who our parents used to be is just a part of the human experience. But the thing about my mother's case um, is unlike those who suffer from hardcore dementia, thank God, I hope we can avoid that, um, my mother, I talk about all the Bettys, and in the course of the day, my mother, you know, there is a vibrant woman sometimes. There is the woman with sense of humor. Um, <clears throat> there are so many flashes of the woman that I remember her strength is visible, but there are, you know, there are other times when she is less able to, you know, summon the old strength. And so, you know, I think that dementia and maybe old age, maybe all old age is almost like, you know, you're seeing all the person, people that this person has been. And I always tell everybody, I said, you know, again, this is, is, is a time where, you know, I, I now know what my mother was like as a little girl. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes she can seem like a stubborn little girl. And um, so it's, it's not like you have at least... I, it, it's not that I have completely lost her. There's, there are, you know, times when she is um, still very much herself. The other day, we were, I was talking, I said, I was giving a reading from the book, and, um, about, and I was going to make it all about her. I said, I'm going to dedicate the reading to you and read these parts of the book that you'll really like. And I, I said, you know, that's it's all about you, this reading. And she looked up and she said, well, that's a hell of a subject. And um, so she's, she's still herself, you know, at, at some times. Yeah. But it's intermittent. It's not consistent. So, yeah. It, yeah. And so it's... it's certain- we have special... I mean, sundowner syndrome is what people with dementia and Alzheimer's really, you know, manifest a lot and it's they're they're worse at night and so at, at night there my mother becomes extremely confused and when she becomes confused when she becomes most conscious that she is um that she, that that she's confused or that she can't summon words or that she that then then there's a terrible anxiety so the nights and and before bed are the worst times, and um, and her best times I think are um, when there's someone around who is either completely unfamiliar or who is an old friend. Uh, she can very often still still rally and be herself and. Um, we, um, you know, one of the things that I make a real effort to do is make sure that uh, her appearance is always really good. And I take her to St. Louis, the hairdresser, and get her hair colored. And we work really hard to keep her appearance up so that when she looks in the mirror, even if she thinks that part of her is gone, that person that she sees is still the familiar person. And... um and that she's not having to deal with feeling bad about herself, at least in a physical way. Yeah. So you, she, she, you make sure that she is well dressed. You also make sure. I think this was, and I think this is really true in my experience with older people, 80s and 90s. Like, be sure and have your two shots of gin a day, or whatever it is that you drink. <laughs> very, very important. Yeah. 
I'd um, say in the book, uh, two Bloody Marys is, are, goes a lot further than uh, any prescription medication. Absolutely. And it's a shame because <clears throat> assisted living facilities and nursing homes, they're always trying to take the martinis away from the, from the, uh, the residents because I've worked in those places as a social worker. But, um, you know, I'm, so a day in the life of you and your mother in Bettyville, I mean, you're, I mean, I, could you just get, get you know, what, what do you wake up in the morning and I assume that your mother, because you say, you know, at night, I think also you get tired. I mean, especially if you're older and then you become more frustrated and confused. But so, and she, you, you said she feels better when there's somebody, new people come in or people that she's known, but not necessarily you. Um, what kind of support do you get? Well, um, like I get a lot of support and help from this woman who works with us. And um, she helps cook and she also like today, we have to go to um, radiation, and I couldn't. I just, I, we, I can't manage a, a trip with her um, alone, just me anymore, unless it's short. Uh, because, you know, she might have to stop to go to the bathroom and things like that, and um, and so. Uh, you know, she's. She, you got to have somebody. You just. You know, you can't do it by yourself completely, or you will die. Yeah, and I feel I think, so, but so I, sorry. I don't want to gloss over that because I think some, even with spouses or partners, they feel like they need to do it on their own, and then they end up getting as sick as the person they're caring for. Because I think what you just said is an important point. You do have somebody helping you, and if you don't, then maybe you do have to take from. I mean, a practical standpoint, maybe you do have to put your mother or father into a assisted living facility, for instance, or yeah. a nursing home. And I, um, the, the thing that breaks my heart is to see these older spouses um, who are totally, you know, that they're t- they've totally devoted themselves to the care, care of their mates. And, um, you know, it's just to have two old people, I mean, that is just, that is so much and so burdensome. Yeah, and one of the things I yeah. deal with is... You know, I want to get to, you know, because we don't have that much time left, though, but one of the issues or one of the issues that, or one of the, I don't know if you call it a secret, but that's kind of described that in the book, George, but you came back, you're a gay man. It was something, an issue growing up that you didn't discuss with your parents. And as I guess, as you say in the book, I mean, they didn't discuss... T- too much of anything that was necessarily what would be considered controversial. So let's talk about that. I mean, because coming back as a gay man, you came out, what, at 30 or when you went to New York City? Um, And then coming back to your mother at age 90, did you talk about being a gay man, uh, what it meant to you growing up, and and were you able to ever have that discussion with her? Well, yeah, we we talked about it, and... um... And one of the things I deal with the book, and I, I really think it's true with everybody in their, and their parent, in some way, if you, you know, your life uh, is going to be different than the life your parent lives, lived, especially if they live to as old as my parent has lived. And, you know, you, you have to deal with the fact that maybe your parent is not ever really going to get where you want in terms of their understanding of some of the the differences in your lives. And that's, I have had to come to a place of acceptance that my mother is 92 years old and that, and she lives in a town where there are no gay people and she's had no gay experience. And even though the love is there, even though um, even though she wants to be accepting and is to a degree accepting, my mother and I, my, my mother was not brought up to discuss these things. She doesn't have any context. And I'm never going to get my, I'm never going to get to where I want to be in terms of my mother understanding my sexuality. And it's, 
you know... It's a loss, isn't it? It's a, it oh, yeah. It's a regret. It's a terrible regret. And I wish that I had worked harder. But, I mean, this is... You know, at the end, I think you don't get perfection. And but what do you I mean think, by work harder? What could you have done? What do you well, work harder in I terms think of- that I could have exposed her more and exposed her better to the gay parts of my life. But I was this kid who had grown up here in this place. And this was, you know, I grew up in the 70s, early 70s, when, you know, there weren't gay people on television. There weren't gay magazines. There was, I mean, it was a taboo, and it was a sin. And that was my experience. And I was not taught as a young man to kind of have personal conversations. I, I wasn't taught to deal with dealing with my parents. And my parents weren't taught this either. And we didn't have help then. And so there, you know, I take a lot of the responsibility because I should have more courage about it. But, you know, back then, we just didn't know. And I felt so guilty. I was an only child. I was their only, you know, they poured their everything into me, their hopes. And I and I didn't want to disappoint them, and but mostly I didn't want to hurt them. And also, early in my life, I can I mean, I came of age, age during the AIDS thing, and I was so, so I lived in such fear that I had AIDS, and I lived in such fear of them worrying about that, and um, and so there were a lot of factors that came together, and we didn't get there and I didn't get there with my father. My father died before How old was much. your father? Yeah. Huh? How old was your father when you how old he, Yeah. When he died in 1997. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, he So you never had the conversation, but I think, you know, a piece that you just added, I mean, it's uh, you know, kind of blaming yourself, but also in the book you talk blaming yourself for not having the conversation with your parents, but it sounds like your mother also from what you said anyway was always blaming herself because you were gay. She should have done something different. I think women of her generation were raised to, and unfairly, you know, I think women were raised of her time to somehow, at least subconsciously, take more responsibility than they should if there were troubles in the family or troubles with the children. And also with gays, you know, there's the great myth, the old myth that gays stem from having a a dominant mother. mother. And it was one of the ways strong women, you know, it was one of the ways strong women were kind of punished for being strong. They thought strong women created weak sons. And, um, and, you know, I think that was in the mix somehow with her. So you had and a perfect story that's for one of the things yeah. that I have always tried so hard to um, wipe away from her consciousness that this was something that she did that was inappropriate. Well, there's also attaching negativity to being gay that could be the most positive thing being you know proud that you have a gay son that's another topic but um it's it's kind of like you had the perfect storm for non-communication here you are in the midwest a town of 1200 people no gay people that you knew of i'm sure there were some but nobody at least to admit to it at that time and um you know in missouri um I mean, I'm, hey, fast forward, look what's happening in Indiana and Arkansas today. So, um, Well, that's why, I mean, that's part of the reason why I wrote the book, is that, I mean, when I was here, a friend of a friend lost her son to suicide after she had a terrible reaction when she found out he was gay. And um, these people in Indiana, Arkansas, they are, you know, they are creating a context in which gay children grow up with shame. And they don't care. And, um, you know, in, in, in their mind, 
their inability to serve a hamburger to someone because it, you know, is some sort of a violation of their religious faith supersedes the feelings of a gay child. And I, in this book, I wanted, part of what I wanted to show is that gay children hear everything when they grow up. They are, they are bombarded with negativity about themselves. And I think that was part of what made the communication with me difficult with my parents. But we don't want to go back. We don't want to go back to the point where gay people are burdened with shame that they have to somehow deal with their entire lives. And this right now is a juncture. This second is a juncture in terms of do we go back or do we not? Well, and when to, you see gay groups reacting left, like they are to we the Indiana a... thing, you know, this is, this is such a threat to us. This is a threat that we feel in our bones. Two minutes left or a little bit less, and I think one positive thing, you can't go back, which is very fortunate, because, yes, you can have, you know, all that's happened and all that's evolved and all that's, um, and I work very closely with the Pride Center here in Albany, New York, and work with a lot of the gay students. Um, They have a very different attitude than, say, your generation or my generation. Granted, we are in New York State, but still you're not going to set them back. They're going to get up and fight, and they're going to do I what hope they so. Have. Yeah. They're going to do what they have to do. I have great faith. Um, I, I, I think so. And I, but I do, I, I do hope that people realize in Albany and New York City that in Pierce, Missouri, it's still different, and it's still hard. And you still, I mean, mothers attack mothers of lesbians because they think that the lesbianism of their children is an indication of bad parenting. I mean, I've heard a lot. It's not over here for these kids. It's not. And um, I really, one of the things that I wanted to show in Bettyville is that, you know, this separation, that negative um, uh, inculcation creates between parents and children takes away what a family could be, and it takes away um, the the feeling at the end that you might have that you you know that you that you really knew each other and you know the love is there, but still you want to actually feel that someone has seen you all the way. Well, you, uh, you, well we're talking about family values. <laughs> we have to um, say goodbye because my next guest is here. Uh, you uh, you personify family values. Here you ha- are there for your mother, the only son. You came from New York City to go back to take care of her during these years when she is <coughs> declining. So uh, I don't know a better definition of family values than you and your relationship with your mother right now. So um, Bettyville is the name of George's book. George Hodgman, author of Bettyville. Just tell us where we can, we can uh, where we can buy the book at. Amazon.com, bookstores everywhere. Website that we can go to to get more information about you and the book? Well, I would go to my Facebook page, George Hodgman, author. I could give you, I do have a website. You could look under George Hodgman, Google George Hodgman. I'm not sure of the coordinates to give you on the phone, but the book is available. Barnes & Noble, Amazon, it's it's pretty widely available. And, um, uh, actually, it's on its second week on in the New York Times bestseller. Congratulations! List. I'm it's very great, grateful. Yeah, great book, great memoir, and really, thanks so much for being on the show this morning. You're great. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you yourself. Bye bye. We're going to take a short break, and coming up next is Margaret Marshall. She's author of Body, Mind, and Mouth: Life's Eating Connection. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. And you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. We will be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Tune in Tuesdays and join the credit master and consumer advocate, Mr. D, a.k.a. Bruce J. Danielson, and learn the whole truth about credit risk scoring, collectors, both kinds, credit bureaus, credit cards, tax liens, mortgages, and much more. Find out how to use accountability combat to protect yourself from becoming a victim and to fight back against corporate abusers, such as banksters who have taken unfair advantage of most of us. The Consumer Fightback Show educates consumers on how to find relief within today's onerous credit system. See you Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Eastern, 7 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Variety Channel. We are broadcasting from the Phoenix studios at voiceamerica.com. Variety Channel, Going Global with Gas Man, is the show that you are listening to. And joining me today is Sean Morley from the WWE, otherwise known as Val Venus, the big Val Boski. <laughs> Hello, ladies. <laughs> <laughs> and he's also got a third identification as well. He Absolutely. Is Captain Cannabis. Live every Saturday at 1 p.m. Pacific time on the voiceamerica.com Variety Channel. Going global with gas. Man. How the hell do they know that I got gas? The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, joining me this morning is author... Uh, Margaret Marshall. She's a nationally recognized speaker, columnist, and media guest who addresses a wide variety of topics regarding health and wellness throughout weight uh, weight control. Her new book is Body, Mind, and Mouth, um, Life's Eating Connection. Uh, Margaret is is a recognized expert in her field, and actually she's worked with this is a huge number, nearly 10,000 individuals helping them to lose weight. She's a former Weight Watchers group leader, and she did that for 17 years, and now is president of Margaret Marshall Associates Incorporated and founder of the Why Weight Coaching Method. Uh, welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Margaret. Good morning, Catherine. I'm so happy to be with you. Well, I'm sitting here with your book, and I guess maybe you already can, you know what my first question is going to be, like, why your book, what's different about your book in terms of losing weight? Because there are hundreds, what, thousands of books about losing weight, different programs. Um, What makes your program unique? Okay, so that's a great question, (laughs) Catherine, because truthfully, the weight loss industry is a $60 billion industry, and much of that is marketing and myth and hype. And so what I try and do is stay away from that and stay away from the idea of the commercial programs that get individuals to believe in the commercial program. I want individuals to believe in themselves. And one of the ways I do that, of course, I have the way I teach people how to eat, which is the five-finger food guide. But one of the ways I, I do that is to get them to acknowledge and understand and realize the skills and the traits and the intelligence that they have already possessed and that has been exhibited in other areas of their life. And now we take those skills and we make them uh, work for you in the area of health and wellness. So most people that come to me for help have been to all the commercial programs and have, you know, and they tell me each one that they've been on and do you learn from them? Of course you do, but the commercial programs want you to believe in the commercial programs. I love to see people believe in themselves. Okay, so you have a 10-step way, W-E-I-G-H, to a healthy body, and that's a, it's a 10-step program. So you're saying believe in yourself, not in the program. So well, how I do you think do... you have to learn. You know, yeah. you have to learn from different things, and I help people do that as well. All right, so how do we do that? Because in your book you, talk, you, you, deal, you, talk, you help people to lose weight, seniors, children, uh, it runs a whole gamut, all the demographics right. of all the people you've, 10,000 people that you've helped. So right. what do you do? Someone cut, examples always are the best in terms of like explaining the process. How do you 
get people to what respect and love yourself so that you, your weight loss will be permanent? That's one of the first things you say. Well, yes, you want it to be lasting, of course. And and so um, one of the things, the best way I can answer that, Catherine, is to say when I start working with people, whether it's one-on-one or it's a group setting, I have to really learn and understand where they are, and I have to meet them where they are and then bring them to where they need to be. So that's different for everyone. Like uh, the other night I just wrote, I just published a blog for the Huffington Post too, and I just published a blog the other day because, um, you know, I get inspiration from my blog, some things that clients and people say to me, and this one client who I just started working with, we were talking about sugar and artificial sweeteners, and, and she said to me, Everything we eat, Margaret, has artificial sweeteners in it. And I said, what diet programs have you been on? And she mentioned tens of them, all of them that promote or sell food with artificial sweeteners. And I said, no, no, everything you eat has artificial sweeteners in it because she never learned to eat the natural form of food and how to make food work for her. So to answer your question, Catherine, and I hope that I did, I I work with people I get from where they are and get them to where they need to be. I don't start with someone and say, this is what you have to do. Let's start this right now. It's a process. It's a um, process that we work on. Yeah, right, so that's a different program. That I just want to clarify it. Instead of saying, you're coming to me, whether whatever the program is, and here's the program, and now you have to follow it. You're not saying that. You're saying, okay, tell me about you. Why do you make your choices, and how do you make your choices, and who are you, and you know, how, I mean, is, is that what, I mean, is that clarifying it a little bit, I guess? Right, because, exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, for so many people, and, and I work with, you know, seniors and children and men, but I have to tell you, the bulk of, of my people that I work with are women. So, so many women are so successful in other areas of their life, uh, being a mother, being a grandmother, being a, a, a career woman, but they can't get their eating under control. But yet they have and own all those skills that has um, helped them in other aspects of their life. But they're not recognizing that we can use those same skills. So one of the stories that I do tell in my book, I just happen to think of it as I'm saying this, I was uh, working with this a woman who was an emergency room nurse. And she would always say to me, you know, in the moment when I'm choosing something to eat or I'm hungry, I just can't make the best decision for myself. And I just looked at her and I said, you're an emergency room nurse. How many times during the day do you have to make a split-second decision? And she said, all day long. I said, well, then you have that skill. Now let's make that skill work for you when you're choosing food to eat. And that was a light bulb moment for her. She never, she never put the two together that it's the same skill that she uses in her professional world that she can now use in her own health and well-being. So how many pounds overweight was she and how long ago was it and has she lost weight? <laughs> Those are good questions. How many pounds overweight was she? She was about, oh, she was probably about 50 pounds overweight. She has lost her weight. She's lost most of it. She is retired now. Um, and... You know, that was just one comment. You know, you work with someone for a period of time, and, and um, it's not that I get them to change their mind. I just get them to view things differently. I help them to view things differently. So in my book, there's all kinds of stories like that. And um, like another one that just came to mind is about one of my clients who always, she has a sister, who always perceived herself as the overweight sister. And I, she never mentioned that to me until one week she said, I now weigh less than my sister. And obviously that was a big thing for her, but that's something she had kept to herself. And so then I knew from there on in, we had to work on making her an individual and not to compare herself to either her sister or anyone else, because if that's the way she's going to manage and maintain her weight, you know, that's dependent on someone else. So we had to work on making her an individual. And I always say if you have, you know, a confident person does not need to compare themselves to anyone else. Well, one of the, uh, you were obviously, in your book you start out, I guess maybe it's in the introduction, but you're saying, well, you're 5'7". Actually, I don't yeah. think you said how much you weigh, but you said you're a size 10. Right. Um, um, but that you, 
when you were younger? You're talking about comparing people, or you had your brothers used to, your name is Margaret, and they called you the big Margaret, Margaret, the big fat target. So that's how you started out? That's uh, correct. That's correct. And um, is that how I, that, that's my story. That, <laughs> I had four <laughs> brothers, and they called me, that was their nickname for me, Margaret, Margaret, the big fat target. And, it, you know, I did um, many unhealthy and crazy things to lose and gain weight through my teens and my 20s. And um, um, at age 30, I was a size 16, and I thought, wow, if I'm a size 16 now, where will I be at age 50? So I'm a big person to begin with. You know, I'm never going to be a size 2 or 4, nor do I want to be. Um, but that was when I, when I was 30, I, I said, I want to live my adult life in a healthy body a healthy body and that's when I started to take control and I am now 58 and I've been a size 10 since that original weight loss um, probably since when I was about 31 31 and a half all right so at 31 you had two kids and I'm assuming you gain weight after you have kids or at least I did Um, (laughs) and (laughs) I was one to go oh I went to weight I always was 10 pounds heavier after each you know each son, and then would go to Weight Watchers, lose the 10 pounds, and then get eating the way that you described it. I think one of the things that you said, and and when I do gain a a few pounds, and I never let it be over five pounds, let's say, is like really getting in touch, as you say, with who you are, looking in the mirror naked and not pretending that I haven't gained the five pounds. Like, I have a choice not to be this way, but really kind of getting in touch with your fat and really looking at yourself and say, hey, look, this has got to go, and... I have to make different choices, or what? And I think that's. I mean, I find that denial is something that you know sort of propels people to keep gaining weight right. and gaining and that's, weight. That's the the um, the technique that works well for you, but that may not work well for everyone. So what I always say, you have to find what works well for you. Now that works well for you, so that's something you may want to continue doing. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, the denial, people will say to me that they have a family member or a neighbor or something, and, yeah. you know, over 300 pounds, and how did they ever allow themselves to get that way? And I, having worked with so many people and worked in this field for 30 years, I believe each one of us that could happen to if we live in that denial. I mean, I feel for myself, and you're talking about individuals, because I'm, like, fascinated with this whole topic of weight gain. It's a real, I think it's one of the biggest uh, health problems that we have here in the United States, this overweight and obesity. So it's, it's good to have you on the show. But um, I could never do that. I, have, I think I have a built-in mechanism, and maybe many others do, too. If I get more than five pounds overweight, I, I actually feel depressed. I don't feel good about myself. It, oh, it sure. Feels, yeah, mm-hmm. it feels, and so I can't mm-hmm. allow myself to gain more weight than that. I mean, it really affects what I do, how I see myself. And how you work, do it, right. Yeah, and how I do it, exactly. Mm-hmm. And maybe certain people don't have that. And, you know, I, you brought it up, but how do people, how do you get to be 100 pounds overweight? I can understand how you can get to be 50 pounds overweight. But then, as you talk about in terms of lifestyle and work and sexuality and relationships, have to completely begin to change when you start approaching, let's say, 100 pounds overweight. So Everything changes, yeah. right. Yes. Another story in my book, I, I was working with this man who was very much overweight, and I, I received a phone call from his wife. Now, he never shared this with me, but she did. She called me and she said, Margaret, we need help. Because of his weight, our lives have changed, you know, for the worse, and we have not had a sexual relationship in over 10 years. And I don't know how much longer I'm going to stay here. So absolutely, weight plays a big part in in much of that. So when you say you have a built-in mechanism, and I don't know you. Uh, to me, that says that that's a part, that's a lifestyle that you just will not accept. But for some reason, and for many reasons, people do accept that. And what happens physically is the more you weigh, the faster rate you put weight on. So when, so when you get to 100 pounds, it's, much, it's a much quicker ride from... 
100 pounds overweight, I should say, it's a much quicker ride from 100 pounds overweight to 200 pounds overweight than it is from 50 pounds overweight to 100 pounds overweight. That I didn't realize. Mm. Um, well, you know, the more weight you have on the bo- your body, the slower your metabolism is, the quicker you, uh, the less calories you burn, the less active you are, the less things you do. As you said, the way it changes your mood, and once your mood is dragged down, you know, usually unhealthy eating appears um, for most people. And so there's many reasons why that happens, but it's a much, much quicker journey from uh, 100 pounds to 200 pounds overweight. And 200 pounds to 300 pounds overweight could be a matter of months. So, you know, you want to catch it. You know, you say 5 pounds, some people say 10 pounds, some people say 50 or 70 pounds because for whatever their reason is, but you do want to catch it, absolutely. Yeah. And I think, which also, you know, one of the themes, obviously, of, your, of the weight loss is this whole issue about you have choices and what kind of a lifestyle do you want to live. And so do you, have when you initially see somebody or counsel somebody when they come in, do you have a list of, like, okay, how is your sex life? How is your social life? How do you travel? What's your relationship with your kids? All of those kinds of questions, and then connect that to the mind-body uh, not the first week. <laughs> you want <laughs> we to have keep to build a up a relationship and a trust yeah. before I start with those things. So usually, like I said, I have the five finger food guide. Usually, we introduce that and we find out um, where they're, you know, what types of food they're eating. Before I see anyone, I have them write me a list of everything they like to eat breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snacks, and not to edit it. So right away that tells me how they're eating and where their likes are. Um, So then I can work with that. And then as the weeks or months go on, certainly, certainly we get into all of that and how your your relationships and your work and your, your family life and how that's all related to your eating or your eating is related to the family life. You know, I have another story in my book about a woman who... Um, her adult daughter, she would always fight with her adult daughter and then overeat. So I got her to disconnect eating with the argument. And after working on that, what she realized was she was no longer fighting with her older da- her old daughter, 45-year-old daughter, whatever it was. And um, And so I said to her, what came first? Did you fight with your daughter to eat or did you eat when you fought with your daughter? And we may never know the answer. The thing is, she was able to disconnect that. And the fighting stopped. Good example. And uh, just and, and um, both of those examples you've given, that example and the one of the nurse who does, pointing out that look at the choices she makes all day long. I love that one. Uh, she has a choice as to what she eats and how much she eats and when she eats. Uh, and another, but another one you uh, example in the book, and I think this is a very common thing. The I think it was an engineer, a fellow who came to you, to one of your uh, sessions as a group session, or and he was thin and well dressed and um, didn't appear to have an eating problem necessarily, and was coming there because of his wife. And very often you'll have one, you know, one of the partners is thin and the other one's really fat. And I have noticed that more and more. I, I travel a lot. We, my partner, my boyfriend, and I were in this. We were, you know, we're in the airport getting a cup of coffee, and I probably in the last three trips we've been on, I've seen like these very obese men with very skinny wives, partners, whatever, uh, which is kind of an interesting phenomenon. Right. So this guy that, or this this gentleman who came to your meeting wanting to help his wife to lose weight. Um, is that something one can do? You or? know, I, I see that often, and not only between spouses trying to encourage or sometimes shame their their overweight spouse into eating, um, but I also see it with parents and children. So it's a very fine line. And, and the story in my book is about this man. He came well. I had a uh, three-part seminar I was, I was presenting, and he came well-dressed to each one, sat in the front row, as he would ask questions or comments, I realized he's talking about somebody that he lives with. I didn't know who it was at the time until I spoke to him personally, but it was his wife. And he could not understand why his wife ate the way she ate and why she was overweight when he could keep it totally in control. So uh, I, I just had a client that I was working with as well who said the same thing, that she was overweight but her husband is not. Now, I don't know the husband, so I don't know what 
you know, what, how he lives or how he eats other than what she tells me or what she perceives. So, but what I could tell in her comments was that the comments from the husband was coming from love. It wasn't coming from shame and, and you know, I'm, I'm disappointed in you. It was coming from love. So one of the things that she would tell me, the comments about her, that her husband would say to her, you know, I finally just said to her, you know what, and this is not my, the way I usually talk, but I just <laughs> wanted to make a point to her. And I said, you know, your husband's delivery, well, I said sucks, but your husband's <laughs> delivery stinks but his intent is wholesome and good. So listen to the intent and stop listening to the delivery. And that changed her, her uh, perception of what her husband was saying to her because it's really how the person perceives the comments, not necessarily the comments always. Yeah. Now, so that's then, not but, always the case. Sometimes the comments are coming from shame, and, you know, but this particular one, it was evident it was not. So helping her not to be defensive because that's really not right. As you, you know say, that he loves you and he's yeah. caring about your health and you know. And I said to her, as you continue to gain weight, if you do, his life changes. You're not going to be able to do the things that you once did. And so when she realized that his comments were coming from love and wanting to be with her and have fun with her, uh, it, 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 they didn't bother her anymore. In fact, they empowered her. Uh, we have a minute left, so I want uh, oh, so great, yeah, very quickly. But you know, there's great stuff in your book, and now you, you know, we've gone full circle, and I think you really have explained why it is unique. Your the, the weight loss plan, body, mind, and mouth, life's eating connection, Margaret Marshall, and you have a business as well. Um, Margaret Marshall Associates Incorporated. Correct. So website that we can go to, more information. MargaretMarshallAssociates.com. And we can buy the book at Amazon and bookstores everywhere. Yes, wherever books are available, you can get the book. If they don't have it, they will order it for you. Great. Um, great having you on the show today. Thank you, Catherine. Made my day. Thank you so much. Uh, we have to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and uh, we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinesox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.